Well, we're, uh, we're talking about marriage and relationships. It's something I've never done. I've uh, never, in all the years I've taught or been a pastor, talked about marriage. Um, it's not something I wanted to do uh, up until like even five minutes ago. Uh, it's something I feel compelled to do, though. It's, it's a huge thing. It's... Um, it's a huge thing, and I don't think I have to explain that. But so we wanted to be able to tackle it just because it's important. It's important to us. It's important to relationships. It's important to the health of communities. It's important to, to kids. Um, and whether, and so some people were like, ah, oh, if we do a marriage series, isn't that going to be very narrow? And, and the kind of way I, I looked at it is you're either married, you've been married, you're planning on getting married, uh, you know somebody that's married, um, so some way, somehow, you're all connected to marriage at that level. And so hopefully we'll understand that this is just a, a really broad topic, whether it's looking into your future or looking back, looking sideways, any way you look at it, um, this is a huge topic. And a lot of this is more on the relational side, close relationship side, that you can even talk about in terms of dating, courtship, or even best friends. And, and what are the relational things going on with those deep and close relationships that we have. So hopefully we get that. Just a couple statistics I want to throw out. Um, 39% of Americans think that marriage is obsolete. 39% of Americans think marriage is obsolete. Um, and with divorce now, supposedly one in five, the, the divorce papers in court, one in five divorces names Facebook as one of the causes or, or contributing to the divorce. Isn't that crazy? This makes me totally look at Facebook different. Um, when, I was in, when I was in college, whenever I went to this college group, I got saved at age 22. I was an undergrad for six years. There's a couple different reasons for that. Um, and, uh, and so the last two years I was in college, I was in this college group. It was called RUF. Some of you might know it. Reformed University Fellowship. There's a, an amazing guy by the name of David Sinclair who was kind of the pastor to that, the teacher to that. And he would, every two years, do a marriage and relationship series, dating and relationship series. And the group would swell, um, it, would, it would double for that semester. And it's kind of interesting as I was thinking about this series is, in college, no, hardly anyone's married yet. It's all roses and everyone gets excited about it. When we're doing this at Antioch, I kind of was wondering, um, it's a lot messier. <laughs> it's not just a bunch of college kids that are looking forward. We're, we're just dealing with it from all sides. And, uh, and in some sense, I think it grounds the conversation a little bit more um, than just being idealistic on, on kind of the front end of it. Um, but let's look at it. It's... Uh, I want to, we're going to kind of, if you take the note card that you've got in the bulletin where you can do notes, we're going to do a little bit more outline format than what we've done in the past, and you can follow along this way, um, and also write down some scripture references. But what I want to do to begin is I just want to talk about three systemic problems that we have with marriages or, or, or those deep relationships. Um, three systemic problems. What we have to understand about marriage is that it's a derivative property when we're talking about healthy marriage. What I mean by derivative property is uh, you can say, look, I want good marriage, but it would be the same as saying I want a, a, a well-functioning car, I want a healthy building. 
And it's, it's a broad thing, but when you really get down to it, it's made up of component parts. Do you understand what I mean by that? It's a derivative property. So the healthy functioning of a car, the healthy functioning of a building is really derivative of the healthy functioning of component parts. With a building, it's a healthy foundation. Um, the, the infrastructure is built in such a way that it's, it's sound. And that when all of these things kind of come together, uh, you, you have what emerges is a healthy building, a healthy structure. It's the same thing with marriage. So I think we can kind of be like, oh, I want a healthy marriage. I, I want this picture of this glowing thing. And, and, and it's hard to grab hold of. How do you just make healthy marriage come about? And it's really a derivative thing of the component parts. And so I want to look at what's wrong first. And, and these things are tough to get our arms around in terms of fixing. And so we're going to just identify what the issues are, what the problems are with an unhealthy or a dysfunctional um, set of relationships, and then we're going to spend the rest of today talking about application, and when we run out of time, we're going to move on um, to next week and just carry, o- carry it over. So we'll go as far as we can today, and then when the timer says I'm done, we'll be done, and then we'll just pick it up next week with talking about things that we can actually do, biblical things, uh, to bring about kind of good relationships and good marriage. So here are the three systemic things. If you want to turn to Genesis chapter 3, We'll kind of take it from there. Genesis chapter 3 is the story of Adam and Eve. And the first one here is our identity. First one here is identity. And what happens is in chapter 3 we see the fall of man. And by that I mean mankind. And and so in chapter 3 it reads this. The serpent who is more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? You know, the funny thing is, is I think at the root of every sin is, is that question. Whenever... We don't have temptation. It's really easy to know what is right. With my kids, I can see this. My kids know what is right. In, in the absence of temptation, it's just obvious what's right. Let's say it. It's when they're being tempted and when they're kind of off on their own, right is the thing we argue with. Well, maybe there's some other options here. Maybe there's some other things I can do. Is this really the only way? And we, we argue with right in the process of temptation. And, and this is such a, such a huge thing. And this is what happens is the serpent said, is that what God really said? Did he really say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord 
as he was walking in the garden of the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And, and he said, Who told you that you were naked? This is God saying, Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate it. The first uh, problem is identity. Sin here, the fall of man, and sin in our life cuts at our identity, it cuts at our core, it cuts at the heart of the whole thing, it cuts at our foundation, it cuts at the source of what it means to be human, it cuts at our identity. We, on the, on the front end of sin, challenge the authority of God, the sovereignty of God, that God has a plan. What do we wrestle with the most? <laughs> I don't think we wrestle with God's power or control the most. I think we wrestle with whether we trust that a sovereign God has a plan that I'm going to be okay with. We, we wrestle with the sovereignty of God. So on the front end, we, we argue, we wonder if his plan is really the right plan. Maybe there's another way. And we challenge that this identity we have is really found in God, that we can trust God, that we're really children of God, that we're his creation, that God is really good. And, and that's the front end. On the back end of sin, we hide from God. We get defensive. We get uh, afraid of God, of circumstances, and we wall off and, and we begin to be insecure because we've lost what made us secure or what's supposed to make us secure. And so at the, at the core of this whole thing is identity. And so one of the, the crazy things about healthy anything is that we always grab for fruit. How, we know pretty fruit when we see it. You know, you go into, I've never seen somebody go into a grocery store and go, um, there's the banana aisle there's all these healthy bananas. There's the ones that are like rotten and there's flies that are starting to like, you know, fly around. I think I'll grab those bananas. Or like the plums that have the brown like bruised section. I mean, have you ever seen anyone kind of look at all the options and then choose bad fruit? I mean, good fruit is so pleasant to the eye. It's so desirous. And we all know that over bad fruit. We all want it. But when we talk about the spiritual life, we tend to like think in terms of fruit. There's, there's this idea of good virtue and goodness and, and wholeness and completeness. And I want that. And what we don't realize is that comes from, it's derivative from, a whole different process. It doesn't matter what scientists you talk about and what they're doing with cloning or anything else, right? Anything science does is, is at the level of genetics or whatever, but it still has to grow. All fruit has to grow. There's no scientific invention yet that makes ripe fruit appear ex nihilo out of nothing. There's a process to getting ripe fruit. And when we talk about virtues, we talk about what it, what it means to be human, what that would look like, what it would feel like even, the joy that would come from that. 
That's all coming from a source where we're grounded, where we have nourishment, where that's being informed, and it's this connection with God, it's wholeness, it's completeness, it's our identity being found in God. And all throughout Scripture, it doesn't matter where you go, in the Old Testament, it's all about being obedient. Obedient isn't about a tyrannical God bossing us around. Obedience is um, how we stay connected to God in a three-legged race. It's the rules, it's the principles, it's the ideas that keep us in harmony with the God who wrote the script. It's the markers on the page of a play that keep us in our part. You see, it's the thing that keeps harmony. And so all throughout the Old Testament when God's talking about obedience, he's talking about relationship and us finding our identity in God and in God's plan. In the New Testament, Jesus gives probably the most powerful metaphor, and he says, I'm a vine, and you're supposed to be the thing that creates or produces fruit, and that comes about as you're connected to me. Like a branch connected to kind of the stock or the vine, when you're connected to me, fruit will develop and will be produced. But if you're disconnected from me, how can a dead branch produce any fruit? It just doesn't happen. There's no life giving. There's nothing in it. And so the first thing we got to wrestle with is we, we can talk about healthy relationships all day long. And it really isn't about us or what we do. It's about God and our connection to him. Does that make sense? So the first problem is, is identity. And, and that's a deeper issue that we have to deal with. It's that has everything to do with marriage and relationships, but it's so much deeper and in, in independent of that. It's just the root thing about being found in God. There's a, a quote I like that, that someone sent me, and it says this, and I think it has everything to do with marriage, but it says this, couples don't fall out of love so much as they fall out of repentance. Couples don't fall out of love so much as they fall out of repentance. What that really means is it's a whole lot more common for couples or individuals to become disconnected from God and to then hide and to defend and to try and create self on their own. And that has everything to do with a bad or or dysfunctional relationship where we begin to use language like, I'm falling out of love. But the real issue is I'm disconnected from God who would give me the power and the strength to be in this relationship in so much more of a sacrificial way. Couples don't so much fall out of love as they fall out of repentance. Um, The second thing here is communication. You know, this uh, fall of man passage is kind of always talked about as the first sin and the first break from God, but it's also the first marital fight. Did you know that? It's the first recorded in the history of mankind that we have like marriage fight. And and the first marriage fight ever is what? Is the blame game. The the first problem in marriage um, the 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 argument because you can sin together. You know, Adam and Eve sinned together but they were, they were together when they were doing that. The first fight we ever see in, in the history of the world is Adam. 
So everyone always blames Eve for the first sin against God. Well, the first sin in marriage is who? It's Adam. Denying responsibility. And that's huge, and we're going to get to that later. But the first, the first marital sin that we ever see is, um, or fight, if you will, againstness, is Adam denying responsibility and blaming his wife. In doing that, he's protecting self. And so when identity is messed up, what we're really doing is we end up rev- making everything kind of revolve around self, and that affects what we say. When we're not grounded and our identity is us, well, we need to magnify us and protect us because that's all we've got. We're not connected to something that grounds us and gives us meaning and identity. We have to find it on our own now. So when we're disconnected from God, there's this real felt need to build self. And so when there's a threat, what do we do? We defend and we deflect. We defend ourselves and we deflect blame. And you can see that most evident in what? Language. In communication. And so Eve does the same thing. She defends herself and she deflects. They're both doing the exact same thing, just deflecting to a different position. But you see it in the the communication. What you don't see is a question. God, what, what should we do now? God, we've, we've messed up confession. God, what should we do now? A request for wisdom. What you don't see is a different type of spiritual or mature or wise communication. You see a type of selfish communication going on. And what I see as one of the root problems in marriage, especially if you add stress, financial stress, other kinds of stress, any kind of difficulty in the marriage, it will surface the cracks that, that are there with communication and self. And spouses stop listening to each other, asking questions, trying to find language that would build, and they begin to use language to defend and deflect. But when you're defending and deflecting all the time and the other person's doing the same thing, defending and deflecting, what is not going to happen? There's nothing nurturing that that bond between those two individuals, is there? And so communication is one of the deep systemic problems, self-centered communication that happens in almost all relationships. And it's ubiquitous, ubiquitous meaning just rampant everywhere. You listen to conversations, you listen to arguments, and and you can just listen for that self-language. And it's pretty unbelievable. I want to bring up um, two friends of mine and kind of let, uh, let, let them, you know what, there's a mic right there, Bill and Leela, too, if you can bring that when you come up. But they're actually going to be starting a small group for married couples. And the small group is going to have a lot to deal with marriage uh, or with communication in marriage. So I just wanted to kind of bring them up and ask a couple questions of them. Did you guys grab that mic? No? It's just sitting, Kip's got it for you. Um, ask a couple questions of them and give you guys a chance to know about this group. But um, such a big issue in marriage, and, and I want to just ask you guys, maybe you can introduce yourself real quick. I'm Bill Shiravelli. And I'm Leela. Okay, and, and how this came about is we thought, we want a small group. Who has it figured out the most? 
of all the couples at Antioch. And uh, no, I'm just kidding. So why was... The other couple wasn't available. The other couple wasn't available. Um, but maybe just tell us a little bit about why you guys had a heart for kind of starting a marriage group. Well, um, we've been married for over tw- uh, just about 25 years now. And, uh, and we... It's safe. What's I that? Said good safe. Good safe, yeah. And... Um, I'd say that um, 25 years ago, we probably had uh, very little chance of making it in our marriage because um, we entered into a blended family situation, and a lot of people said there's no way, but I really believe that, we both believe that God really brought us together in, uh, to be one, and um, God has blessed our marriage beyond all that we could ask or imagine, and we've seen over the years what a blessing it's been to our kids our parents to the people around us and how it's encouraged them and we just want to encourage people the same and um, I've heard the statement that a man needs a God to worship a work to do and a woman to love and without Leela I would probably would have been like John the Baptist totally crazy on one end and an absolute workaholic and she gives me total balance and uh, and uh, being one is just our marriage is awesome and we want to share that with people, encourage people in that area. Leela, who would be kind of the target group for your guys' small group that you're starting? I think the target group is probably um, younger marrieds and newer marrieds just because, you know, people our age probably haven't figured out how to do it well. But we'd take anybody. But we, <laughs> we've just seen a lot of marriages um, not be successful in communication and become selfish and self-centered and end and um, so I think that we would love to encourage not newlyweds or anything but just younger marrieds who have families and are facing the challenges that marriages face and we've been blessed and we want to share that. Bill you brought a book up kind of what what are you guys going to do and what can people hope to get out of the group? Well we haven't read it yet but we heard it's really good. Uh, but it, it is from uh, family life, and um, we've gone through some of their seminars and in our younger years of being married, it was really helpful. And it's basically about improving communications. It doesn't have a lot of words, which is really good for us, but we want it to be very interactive and, um, and just, uh, you know, we don't want it to be too heavy and uh, just really want to encourage people. And uh, so we're going to use this as our guide, and we do promise to read it before we begin. When, do, you know, do you know when the group's going to be? Yeah, it's on Tuesday nights. starts April 12th, and we're thinking 6.30 to 8, give or take, and then every other week. Sounds good. All right, thank you, guys. Thank you. Bill's my hero. That's why I dressed like him today. Yeah, yeah. Uh, by the way, Bill's one of the elders at Antioch, and I would just highly recommend that. And if you want more information or if, um, you know, you want to potentially sign up for that, you just write that on that connection card, put it in the offering basket when it comes by. They'll email you about the small group starting with Bill and Leela, kind of on marriage and communication. Um, it says this in Proverbs, uh, Proverbs 18, uh, verse 20. It says, from the fruit of their mouth, a person's stomach is filled. With the harvest of their lips, they are satisfied. Proverbs 18, 20. From the fruit of their mouth, a person's stomach is filled. With the harvest of their lips, they are satisfied. There's an unbelievable connection between the deeper spiritual things and the words that come out of our mouth. I mean, it sounds cliche to talk about how God creates, how he does miracles with 
the power of words, speaking things into existence and things like that. And it always feels like, oh, yeah, that's one of those weird spirits. God speaking things into existence. It's, it, it's true. Words are unbelievably powerful at creating or destroying. And it says here in Proverbs, the fruit of our mouth, our stomach is filled. It actually satisfies our desires when there's a certain kind of speech. And with the harvest of our lips, we truly are satisfied. And um, I was asking the Antioch staff, I kind of was like, hey guys, marriage series, what do you think people need to hear? And like all at once, all the gals on staff said the same thing. Um, wives need to hear that they're loved. And it kind of reminded me of a joke. Terry Randstad, another one of the elders, has a joke because he's like Swedish. I think it's Swedish. He's, I, don't, I don't know if he's even in here, but I think he's Swedish. And he always tells this joke about Swedes. And he's like, you know, Swedes, they, they, uh, they all kind of live by this principle. And they tell their wives, you know, I, I, told, I told you I loved you on the day we got married. If anything, you know, changes, I'll let you know, you know. <laughs> 20 years later, it's like, you know, I haven't said I loved you for 20 years, but why would I? I mean, nothing's changed, right? And I think that guys can kind of fall into that. There's got to be something in our communication that nurtures this relationship. And if we don't focus on that kind of communication, I know our communication will be filled with things that won't necessarily nurture this relationship. Communication's huge, and it's it's a, a component part of what we're looking for. Listening isn't a need we have, it's a gift we give. Uh, The third thing here is character. Character. You know, uh, someone sent me this joke. It's this, it says, a successful man makes more money than his woman can spend. And a successful woman is one who can find such a man. Um, (laughs) our, Our notion of success... Um, is pretty skewed um, what we should really be looking for in marriage and in life. And, and I'll give you a different picture. And if you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, it's one of character. 1 Tim- uh, Timothy chapter 3 is actually the passage that Paul uses to talk about leaders or overseers or shepherds or pastors. It's all kind of the same word, but it's, it's basically the mature individuals that can handle the church. And here's where it goes. It says, Here's a trustworthy saying, and if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, and he must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. Here's the parentheses. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family well, how can he take care of God's church? Now, I want to flip that around. Paul's given a formula of how someone can take care of God's church. These are the kinds of people we want to take care of God's church. And he gives this thing that says, if they can do this well, family well, then they can do church well. I want to flip that around and say, if if a guy can do church well, if, he, if he's elder qualified, then he can do what well? Family well. If you're not married, if you're divorced and look to remarry someday and you're a woman, you know what you should be looking for in a guy? An elder qualified guy. You look for an elder qualified guy and you'll find a guy who can do family well. 
If you're a guy who's not yet married and you actually care about becoming or making yourself the husband you ought to be, set your heart on being elder qualified. If you desire to be an overseer, you desire a noble task. If you become elder qualified, you're, you're pursuing the same things that would make you family qualified. You're pursuing character. Because First Timothy, this whole list of what it means to be a spiritual leader, somebody that's able to lead and be responsible of people, of other people, God's people, a shepherd who can literally stand between God and, and his sheep, okay? A spiritual leader. These are all character qualities. You notice it's not about IQ. It's not about um, leadership experience. It's not about a lot of gifts that we would maybe highlight in our culture What's really at the heart of this is character. Character is so foundational to healthy relationships. I want to read a couple things here. Here's a definition. Character, if you want to write this out. Character is our moral and ethical strength to behave according to proper values and principles. Character is our moral and ethical strength to behave according to proper values and principles. Character is disposition. Character is really your set of habits. It's your dispositions and it's your set of habits. As such, here's the interesting thing about it, it's something that you see over time. The, the strength of character is evidenced over time. Character is best identified from patterns, history, and consistency. This is why any girl who doesn't know the history of a man or his history is new, I always counsel them to slow down when it comes to marriage. Because guys will set, can say or do or behave any way over a short period of time, especially if the carrot is great enough. And if a girl really wants to marry a guy who's family qualified, that has character, that has to be evidenced over time. It's interesting, there's pastors that, that fall now and again. And, and a number of years ago, I was besieged by people uh, in the wake of a pastor who, who fell uh, a public kind of a thing, besieged by people taking me to coffee and demanding to know my accountability scheme. And you want to know what my answer was? And I, I was being a little bit facetious, but I would, they would ask, what is your accountability? Who are your accountability partners? And I would just look at them and I'd say, I don't have any. I don't have an accountability. I don't, I don't have a group like that. I don't have accountability. And, and they, their jaws would drop and their eyes would pop. And wow, in the world without accountability, are you ever going to hope to not fall? I said, listen, you don't understand. Outside structures and, and supports to try and keep something that's bent from falling over is not how you really want to design spiritual leadership. Spiritual leadership, according to Timothy, is about character. It's not about all the outside structures and supports that you can keep a lopsided thing trying straight. It's the things that are built in, the habit patterns, and the, the consistency over time 
that says there's, there's a formation in there. And I would say to these people, listen, I don't have accountability systems. I have character, and that's what you get. You get to ask people who know me. You get to ask my wife. You get to ask the elders in this church whether I have character or not. Whether the, the things in Titus or Timothy are true enough about me that you can have trust in me as a shepherd. Because everyone I've known who's fallen had accountability structures. Everyone I've known who's fallen had accountability structures. They just weren't honest with them. Or there was some deeper things going on than just meetings on the calendar. Character is what is really true about a person. It's, it's the, inter, the inner structuring and, and makeup, and it takes a long time. And guys that want to be a certain way, you need to pursue it now. And girls who want a certain kind of husband, you've got to look at the history and not just what a guy tells you because, man, when guys are shopping or on the chase, um, they can sound really persuasive. But it's about character. Now, that's the flip side, too. It has to do with women as well, this character thing. There's a, a man's side and there's a woman's side. When I was... Men, women, same tense. When I worked at a Christian camp and I wasn't married yet, and this was the early days of me being a Christian and, and, and coming into positions of leadership in the church, I had a boss, a mentor, and he used to say to me, Ken, do not be in too great of a hurry to get married. Over and over he would say it to me, and I was like, man, I don't want to hear that. Make it sound like it's going to take forever. But he would say, Ken, do not be in such a hurry to get married. And this is what was on the back end of that sentence. He would say, most, many of the guys I know that were in too great a rush to get married, their greatest liability in life is the woman they married. He goes, Ken, there are a lot of guys in ministry whose greatest liability is the woman they married. He says, do not be in too big of a rush to get married. This goes both ways. Let me give you a verse for this. Proverbs 12.4 says this. A wife of noble character is her husband's crown. But a disgraceful wife is like decay in his bones. I'm not talking about personality here. I'm talking about character. Proverbs 12.4. A wife of noble character is her husband's crown. It's, it's what makes him have respect at the gates. It's what uh, helps his identity and his position in life. It's It's... All of those things coming and working together. But a disgraceful wife is like decaying his bones. It's the thing that ought to be there actually withering away and decaying him from the inside out. Men, do not be in too great of a hurry to get married. Your greatest liability in life could become your wife. Now, if you're in a situation where you've been married or are married, and this is a difficult thing. By the way, this is a... This is why it says, be equally yoked. I mean, Paul's principle of being equally yoked is saying, look, if you're yoked, if you're in marriage, if you're tied to somebody who's, who's going to go away other than you, that's going to create such a tension in marriage, you don't want that. You want someone who worships the same God, like truly, not just says they're a Christian, not just says they're a believer or someone who follows God, but that that's true of them. You want to pull in the same direction as this person that you're getting married to or tied to. 
Now, the hope, because there's always hope um, in Scripture, there's always hope with God. The hope is this, it says in 1 Corinthians 7.16, about people who are unequally yoked. It says this, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? And Paul is counseling the partner who's mature spiritually, who's unequally yoked, to stay in that relationship because they're in a, in a position where God can use them to redeem something that might be broken. So on the front side, wisdom would dictate you marry someone of good character. On the back side, you trust hard, you lean hard into God, and you realize that God can do something great through you, take something that's broken and reform it. That's the hope of it. Now I want to quickly kind of move on to some, some application. These are things that we can do in trying to deal with it. So systemically, the problems we face are identity. It's this, what falls from that is self and, and manifested in our communication. And then our character over time, whether it's formed to follow God or whether it's formed to build self, these are the systemic things. Here's now what we can do. And the first one is this, um, men lean, lean hard into God. 1 Corinthians, if you want to turn there, 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 11, and verse 3. Now, this is not a, 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 a like a, women just tune out for a minute. <laughs> I don't want to bring any of the egalitarian kind of overtones into this and, and get into a battle this way. I want to just apply this to men. But it says in chapter 11, verse 3, and it says it elsewhere in Paul's letters, but it says this, Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. And what I want to draw this out for you. What Paul is doing here is giving a view of headship and he's he's kind of if I draw it maybe I can put it this way Christ husband wife now the biblical view of headship if you understand it, it has to do with the covenants and it has to do with kind of these uh, we see it all in the in the Hebrew culture but God puts filters and layers in there for the benefit of his people. He puts filters and layers in there for the best functioning and benefit of people. Now what he does is he's put Christ in there to take the blow for us. It says in, in the New Testament, like we get this idea that when we become a Christian, we use Christ for salvation and then it's just us and God. The reality is it says in the book of Revelation that Jesus is there as our advocate. The book of Hebrews says this all over the place. He's, he's our high priest. He's the mediator between us and God. And when we sin, it's like Christ is up there saying, God, I got that. I got that. It's, all, it's okay. Put that to my tab. I'll, I'll bear the brunt of that. I'll protect against that. It's, it's as if Christ is our head and it goes on and says that. And Christ is the head of the church and everything else. But he takes the bad, bears the brunt of it. He knows the good and labors to bring it about. 
Christ is a covenant head who is there for the best functioning and for the ultimate health of us. It's what it means to be a covenant head. It's a shield, a protection, a guard, a nurturer. And what Paul is saying here is, look, husbands, Christ is your head, okay? That's a cool thing. Now, here's the other part, though. You're also the head. You're the covenant lead in something, namely the relationship with your wife. What this means is she gets to lean on you for strength. She gets to depend on you. You you take the brunt, you wear the weight, you bear up under it, you guard and protect her so that her life is all that it can be. She gets the benefit of that. She gets that honored position. She gets to enjoy that. Now that's heavy. What do you do with that? You now lean on Christ. And you take your burdens and your difficulties and your shortcomings and your problems and you then put that there. Now here's the dysfunction and this is coming out of my own life. Like I've never read marriage books. Linda's dad taught me that. Best advice and worst advice all at the same time I've ever been given. Like he poisoned me to books because um, and he's right. Steve Janney said, marriage books and parenting books, don't read them because it cuts off your creativity in being a parent or being a husband. You like begin to think in terms of somebody else's categories. Um, I actually think best advice I was ever given. So all the stuff I'm talking about is my wrestlings with marriage and, and my looking at scripture. <laughs> this whole two service time literally cuts a chunk out of sermons. And I don't know what to do with this right now. Um, it's only the first to thank you. Let me, let me try and boil this down, and then we're going to have to bring it to conclusion. But here's the deal. When I was newly married, I was in leadership of something. I had identity in that. I felt strong and secure like I was someone. Um, fast forward nine months, I was without a job, going to school full-time, Tamara was working, basically supporting us. And I had, I had no identity anymore. There was no respect coming to me because I was leading people or, or doing something meaningful. And Tamara would come home crying, bad day at work, all this other stuff. And it's this awkward feeling of, of who am I and all that. That developed in me a lot of insecurity. If you've lost your job recently or lost your house and you're a guy, a husband, I guarantee you, you know what I'm talking about. You got your legs taken out from underneath you and all of a sudden there's all these feelings of insecurity. Guys struggle at times. And this, I'm a really confident guy. I've gotten in trouble for it most of my life, right? In this particular instance, my security was gone. And I begin to feel like I'm drowning. I need to feel like I'm valuable, like I'm important. And where I started to go with that was where? Tamara. I feel really insecure. I feel lost. I feel like I'm drowning. You know, make me feel secure. Ground me. And the craziest thing happened. You want to know what she did? She freaked out. (laughs) Because for her experience over here, her foundation was me. 
Her source of strength was me. Her security was me. I'm her head. And when her grounding gets taken out from underneath her, her, her first thought isn't let me like pull Ken up. It's like, holy cow, where am I? I feel lost. What's going on? I was supposed to be... You see what I'm saying? And I began to get really frustrated because she wasn't giving me what I was craving and wanting and needing, all this babying. And it started to just unravel our relationship. And it, and it spiraled from there. And I remember reading this verse one day and it just all clicked into place and I began to realize I'm going to the wrong place with my junk. It's okay to feel insecure, but I got to take that to Christ. I got to get on my knees in the morning. I got to pray through the, the watches of the night. I got to go there and dump it on Christ and somehow get strength so that I can be grounded because it's my job and it's my role and, and she needs it for me to be stabilized so that she can lean on me. So I go to Christ. And my wife gets to go to me. Now the beauty is she gets to go to Christ also. She gets two places to go. And you'll, if you know or if you're in this relationship, if a woman can't lean on the guy, boy, she's got to go to Christ ten times the amount. And, and she will usually. Because women, it's amazing, find a way spiritually. It's amazing. But if we want healthy relationships... Here's the biggest thing that needs to happen. Guys, you need to be, and you need to learn to be, we need to learn to be the spiritual leaders. We need to learn to lean. This, this has nothing to do with authority over our wife. Not, not at all. It's everything to do with responsibility and shouldering up underneath it. Man, chivalry. One of the greatest pictures of a man is not smoking pot on a beach, drinking a Corona with a big smile. Like, our picture of masculinity has become a happy, relaxed, passive dude. It's, it's a far cry different from what the picture used to be in ages past. The real picture of masculinity, you see it on the cross with Jesus. It's not a smile being all passive. The, the, pure, the purest picture of masculinity is when a guy just wears it stands up underneath it and bears the burden so that other people are able to be safe or secure. The true picture of masculinity isn't always a smile on a dude's face. It's the ultimate picture of a guy putting his hands to the plow, serving, bearing it, suffering. Guys, the only way to do that well is to have a source of strength for when we're weak. That's Christ. Men, we need to lean hard into God. We're going to have to close it down here. We'll just pick it up next week. Maybe we'll just have to add some weeks to this whole series. Um, Joshua twenty four fifteen says this. It's Joshua talking and he says, But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Men, you got to do that. You got to take the ownership. Now, guys hate marriage ser uh, series. You don't want to know why? Women love it. Ooh, they're going to talk about marriage. Like, got to go to church. Guys hate it. You want to know why? Because even if I say something that's right or true, 
If I say it and your wife hears it, then, then guys, you don't want to do it because you don't own it. You know what I'm saying? If you do it, you're like copying me and your wife. You know what I'm saying? There's no respect in it. Okay? That's why guys hate it. It's like, man, I can't do whatever he says. It's like, ruins it. Because where, where am I in this? You know what I mean? You figure out your way to apply this. You figure out your way to say, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. You figure out your own ways of serving. You don't have to copy. Lead. Lean. Lean hard on Christ, who is your head. Men, lead your family spiritually. If you don't know how to do it, figure it out. Figure it out. If you can figure out how to play golf, then you can figure this out. Okay? Put God at the center. Everybody. He's got to be our identity. Healthy people have healthier relationships. Grounded people have more stable relationships. The way to avoid lust is to nurture love. All right, we're way over now. Um, let's close in prayer. And we'll just pick it up ne- next week. Um, maybe we'll get farther in the second service and you can just stick around. Um, Father, we commit our marriages to you. We commit our relationships to you. Without you, we have no center. I just pray for this church. I pray for the health of this church. I pray for the health of the marriages, the marriages to come, the second marriages, the third marriages. It doesn't matter, Father, where we're at. I pray for the health of our relationships. May we be grounded in you and your son who died for us that we could have the glue we need to be able to hold these things together. Something other than ourself at the center of our relationships. And we pray that in Christ's name.